Yeah. It is so good to be with you this morning um, and to be together. I have missed you. <laughs> um, this has just been uh, a really long year, and I'm hoping that I don't do anything to screw this up. Um, it's, uh, I'm just so glad to be together and gather together and community. And for those of you who are joining us online, um, we understand that some people, you're still kind of a, a little hesitant in all of this, and, and we just welcome you and glad that you're joining us as well. Um, I wish, when I was a kid, there was a program called Romper Room. Anybody remember this? And Miss Nancy, at the end, she had a magic mirror. Do you remember her magic mirror? So she could, she, she could actually see through the magic mirror to people on TV. So me, in my living room, watching her. And she'd say, oh, I see Ken, and I see Harley. Good morning, Becky. You know, and it was just like, I wish I had that magic mirror so I could say to all of you online, I see you in your jammies, in that bathrobe. Cover up, will you? No. Um, <laughs> Uh, Pastor Larry actually mentioned, yeah, it was uh, exactly a year ago. It was the last time I preached here. And that um, you don't know, and actually he mentioned a couple weeks ago that actually it was our 30th birthday together as a church. Um, so today's a special day, but it's more than just that. It's because um, most of you don't know this, but it was exactly 11 years ago that Pastor Larry first joined our pastoral staff and became a member here. So... Um, so that makes this a special day as well. And let me just say how personally grateful I am to Pastor Larry. Um, through all the years that he was on staff and such a support personally to me and, and did so much to, to invest into the life of this church and to be able to hand over the reins, if you will, to someone that's just so capable and so caring and so loving. I tell you, I pray for him every single day because you have no idea the weight that rests on your shoulders pastoring a church. You have no idea. In fact, he told me not too long ago, he says, you know what, I was a staff member. I had no idea. I said, yeah, now you do. <laughs> um, pray for him. This has been an incredibly difficult year, and to have to talk about finances in the way in which he did a great job at. Um, but I hope you pray for him every single day. And I hope you write him words of encouragement and thankfulness. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Please do that. Please do that. Pray for him all the time. Um, one other thing about this day. Two weeks ago was 30th anniversary of our church being together when we went public. But it was actually 31 years ago this month that a group of 12 adults and five kids and myself met together for the very first time in the living room to talk about being the church that became Northgate Christian Fellowship. So this is a really special time of year. It's a very, very special day. And a lot has happened. <laughs> a lot has happened in this last year. A lot has happened in the past 31 years that we've been together at church. A lot has happened in the 2,000 years that the church has been in existence. And it's kind of what I want to talk to you about today. We've been going through this series called Journey of Stones and how so often in Scripture there are these images of stones and rocks being used to teach spiritual truths. And Jesus himself did that. Pastor Larry talked last week about um, the story that Jesus told about a man who built his house on a rock. And he challenged us to look at our own foundations 
and, and how we are building our lives and what we are building it on, that unseen part, the foundation. And he said, if you, if you are not building your life on Jesus Christ, it is not going to withstand the storms of life. And we have had storms of life this last year. You need that solid foundation. And today we're going to talk about another time that Jesus talked about rocks. And it's actually found in Matthew's gospel. For those of you who are unfamiliar with scripture, the New Testament begins with the life and teachings of Jesus and then the expansion of the church and letters written to the church. And the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four different accounts four different versions of the life and ministry of Jesus. Two of them were written by two who were actually the original 12 group that Jesus called, Matthew and John. They were eyewitnesses. They were firsthand eyewitnesses to the things that Jesus taught. And that's important because the section we're going to look at today is from Matthew's gospel, and he's giving us some inside information because this is a private conversation that he had just with those 12 followers. He had just been spending a number of uh, uh, days in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee and doing ministry and healing and teaching and all these things. And then he took his disciples. It's about a two-day journey up to a city called Caesarea Philippi, far away from the crowds, far away from everybody else, because he was going to give them something here that was going to change human history. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, beginning in chapter 16, uh, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This rock, that's the word we're looking at today. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I tell you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Wherever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why? <laughs> First of all, why did he take them aside and ask them these questions? And then why did he say, okay, now that I've told you this, don't tell anybody? Well, it was a matter of timing. But there was something that he wanted his disciples to understand. And by extension, for us to understand that anyone who becomes a follower of his, it's not just a personal relationship. It's a personal relationship, but it's not a private relationship. And when you unite yourself with Christ, you become a part of his new community. And what he wanted them to understand and us to understand is that you are a part of something bigger than yourself. Amen. He was saying to his 12 disciples, listen, <laughs> There's just 12 of us here, but you got to understand, this is much, much bigger than you can possibly fathom. And he started by asking them this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In other words, there's a lot of different opinions about you, Jesus. Same is still true today. A lot of people have a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is and who Jesus was. Oh, he was a rabbi. 
Some think he was a, he was a radical. Others that he was a philosopher, a great moral teacher. There's a ton of, ton of uh, different opinions about who Jesus is. But then he brings it down. And he brings it home and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's the key question. Everyone has to answer that question for themselves. Nobody else can answer it for you. Who do you say that I am? A lot of people avoid that question. A lot of people just talk about this historical figure, but don't want to come to grips with who he really was. A lot of different opinions, but Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? And it says, Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now notice he didn't just give another opinion. This was a conviction. He didn't say, well, you know, I was talking to John over there, and he thinks, and, you know, and I was talking to Matthew, and, and he thought, but this is my opinion. No, he didn't, even, he didn't even hesitate. He didn't even say, we think. He just said, you are. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Everything hinges for you and for me when we answer that question. Now, Messiah is an important word there, and this is why he took him two days away from everybody else, and this is why he asked him in private and said, don't say anything, because Messiah was a loaded term. There were a lot of people that came claiming to be Messiah, and the, the, the perception of Messiah, the expectation of Messiah, particularly for the Jews at this time, was someone who would come, overthrow the Roman rule, and reestablish God's kingdom here on earth, of course, which we are a part of. And Jesus is the Messiah, but not in the way that they thought because he didn't come with armies to overthrow another army. In fact, he didn't come to kill anybody else around him. He came and gave his own life up for them because this kingdom is a lot bigger than you think it is. In fact, it took Peter years after Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection to realize this is not just for Jews. This is for the whole world. He wanted them to understand, this little ragtag group of 12 people, you're a part of something much, much bigger than you can imagine. When you become a follower of Jesus, you become a part of his new community. And that new community is something far bigger than you can possibly imagine. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. Now, that must have thought, that must have seemed to them to be pretty audacious. I mean, who are we? I mean, you know, look around. You know, you got a couple of fishermen, you got a tax collector over there, you know, you got these a bunch of no names, nobody even knows who they were. We got no political power, we got no financial backing, we have no influence. What in the world are you talking about? Jesus said, This is this was revealed to you. This isn't your own idea. This isn't this that you guys talked about. He said, next slide. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then he goes on, and I tell you, you are Peter. Peter's name means rock. Okay? You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What? I mean, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it's great to be a part of your club, but... Changing the world? And I am sure when Jesus was arrested and they were all scattered and they thought back to this revelation and they thought, I don't know what he was talking about. 
And then even after his resurrection, they were still in hiding, afraid of, of, of what might happen to them. Gates of Hades overcoming. Are you, I, I just want to be safe. And then the church was birthed, and on one day, 3,000 people, 50 days after the resurrection, 3,000 people became part of the Okay, well, now this is something. <laughs> which only brought about Roman persecution, first Jewish persecution, then Roman persecution. And I'm sure the early church thought, this is overcoming? This is standing up against the gates of hell? I mean, we're still hiding. We're being arrested. We're being thrown in jail. We're being put to death. All these people scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and then the Roman persecution started. And they were arrested and dragged off and thrown in jail and put to death, torn apart by lions. In Rome, I want to tell you, I got, had an opportunity a number of years ago now, my first time to visit Rome. My son was in school there, and so we went to visit him for his graduation. We actually went and saw the sights in Rome. In Rome, there is this thing. You've probably seen it before. It's called the Colosseum. <laughs> it's an incredible structure that something this huge could be built by manual labor, pretty much. It is one testament to the grandeur of Rome. It's an, a whole area that's surrounded by Palatine Hill, where there are all kinds of ruins where the Senate used to meet. And all these, it's just an incredible place to go visit. And then you go inside, and this is what it looks like on the inside. This is the, the, the floor. This, it's been, part of it's been filled in again now, but this was the catacombs underneath there where the lions and the gladiators would all get ready for battle. And then they would come up onto the stage and thousands of people surrounding all around and they watch. And it was in this place the Christians were put to death. It was in Rome under the persecution of Nero particularly where Christians were tied to stakes, covered with oil, and set aflame to light the streets at night because of their faith in Christ. They were put to death in this very Colosseum. And if you go there today, you kind of, it's right over here in this corner. I got a close-up of it. Next shot. There's a cross. In this place where Christians were torn apart because of their faith, Christians probably thought, this is overcoming the gates of hell. Today, there's a cross. And you know where the cross sits? Right above it here is the emperor's box. Where Emperor Nero used to sit and watch all this stuff happen. But today, there's a cross. And to the Christians who lost their lives in that arena, if you had told them some 2,000 years ago, someday there's going to be a cross here. And it's not going to be an instrument of death. It's going to be a testament to the power of Jesus Christ and his church who is advancing against the gates of hell. And I love the way that Andy Stanley puts it. Andy Stanley says it. And today, the Roman Empire is in ruins, and the, the, the great structures are crumbling. And today, people are naming their dogs Caesar and Nero. <laughs> but the church of Jesus Christ continues to advance. The church has advanced all throughout these years. It has outlasted the Jewish persecution, outlasted the Roman persecution. It has outlasted communist oppression. It has outlasted imprisonments and wars and famines and epidemics and pandemics, by the way. Amen. The church has even outlasted its own failures 
like the Crusades and the Inquisition and the Salem witch hunts. But the church today continues to advance and thrives because it's God's church. And you're a part of it, and it is something much, much bigger than yourself. But what you got to understand about it, though, each of us individually are a vital component in it. That it's a personal relationship, I said, but it's not private. This same Peter, years later, wrote to churches who were scattered all throughout now the Roman Empire. He wrote them a series, three letters. We have them all in our New Testament towards the back end of their Bible. And in his first letter to these churches, people scattered all around, he wrote these words. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says that while you're learning to build your life on that foundation of Jesus, there's another building project going on. And it's what God is doing with all of these individual stones bringing them together. And this is why gathering is so vital for us. And again, let me address those of you who are online and watching at home. I understand if you're not comfortable yet and, and, and you've got you know, medical conditions, I understand. But let me also say, if you're just staying at home because it's comfortable and you can stay in your jammies till noon, that's not acceptable. Because the church gathers together as living stones. That we are meant to be in community. And a stone all by itself out in a field is useless. It is only when the church comes together that truly the work of God can happen. If you've taken the membership class back when I used to teach it years and years and years ago, I used to use an example because my dad was a building contractor, so I grew up in the trade and learned a lot of things about construction. But there's something about, notice he says, you are living stones. You are not living bricks. Because bricks look like this. There you go. They are all the exact same size and shape. Little clones, cookie cutter, laid out. And they all fit nicely together in nice, neat rows and straight lines. That's not how you work with stones. If you watch a stonemason at work, it looks more like this. You got to fit those stones together. Because <laughs> they're not all the same shape and size. And neither are we. We're not all the same. And that's good. That's how God designed the church. By the way, if you watch a stonemason, sometimes he has to chip off some of the rough edges to make it fit into the wall. Sometimes he has to scrape at it. Sometimes he actually has to take the two rocks and just kind of mash them together for a while to get them to fit. That's what God does in the church. See, that's what, that's what, that's why not everybody in this church is going to agree with you on everything. Because God is shaping them, and you know what he's doing? He's shaping you too. And he's going to specifically put you with a group of people that are not like you. And he's even going to put you together with some people in your church that are a little bit difficult. Show of hands. 
How many have encountered at least one difficult person in your church? <laughs> All right. How many have found a few more difficult people during COVID-19 shutdown? <laughs> now, if you didn't raise your hand, it just might be you. See, God's design for his church was not that we would all fit this nice, neat form and all look up pretty and nice. It was to take all this ragtag group of people and, and put them together. And in so doing, while God is building his church, he is building you and I at the same time. And that's why it happens in community, because it's only there where we get together. And, and, and what happened with the early church was that all of a sudden, when people came to faith in Christ and they came together, they were not all alike, just like we aren't. And, and they didn't all agree on everything. In fact, they had a lot of different councils to come together to some resolution on some of the things, some serious theological things that need to be resolved. But he did it to build them as individuals and to build them together as the church. And it's important to understand, by the way, that the church is still under construction. I know people say, you know, I just, I just give it up on the church because... You know, it's just a mess. Well, yeah, because it's still under construction. (laughs) You go to a job site, it's a mess. Because it's under construction. And it's made up of all kinds of different people with all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different faults and weaknesses and failures. Of the Groucho Marx line, I would never become a group, a member of a group that would accept me as a member. Well, that's the church. And he's working in all of us. And, and when we talk about being a grace-filled community, it's because we are all in desperate need of grace. Peter went on to write this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And mercy and grace is what every one of us need. And so we need to treat each other with mercy and grace. And we talk around here very often about that we, we're, we're not, not just that we are a grace-filled community, but, but that we are all people in process. Now, what's implied in that is that there is a process and that we are all making progress in the process. People in process and grace-filled community is not an excuse to say, well, this is who I am. Take it and leave it. And if you leave it, then I'll leave you. No. We are here being fit together as living stones. And you're going to be disappointed in the church. I've been disappointed in the church. I've been disappointed in myself. But we are built together and being built together, and we are still under construction. And mercy and grace are the are key to making it fit. And there's one more thing. But the reason this is so vital is that together we have something to offer the world. Because it's not just about that group of 12 that Jesus started with, and it's not just about this group that gathers together on a Sunday morning. It's about the world, that God is doing something in the world. And what he's doing in us, he also wants to do through us. So after affirming Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, he goes back and he he finishes with this. He says, I tell you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this you right here in the original language, it's plural. So 
Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he says, on that rock, I'm going to build my church. And then he turns to the other 12 and to all of us in this room and all of you joining us online and says, I'm giving you the keys. Then now you've got a mission. And it's plural. I'm giving y'all the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That we have a responsibility. It's Jesus building, but we are not idle bystanders. He has given to us the keys of the kingdom. And what we do with those kings, those keys will either open the kingdom up to other people or it will shut it down because we refuse to open the door. We have a mandate. We have a mission. We have been given the keys. It's still his ownership, but we are the stewards. We are responsible for maintaining and expanding and growing it. Those of you who have had teenage kids, do you remember the very first time you turned the keys of your car over to the 16-year-old new driver? Oh, that's a scary thought. I wonder if Jesus felt that way when he said it to the 12. I'm giving you the keys, but you better take care of it. See, Jesus never taught that the kingdom of God was by and by, pie in the sky when I die. He always taught as the kingdom come to this earth. In fact, he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our job. We are here to offer the world the one thing they cannot get anywhere else, this message of grace and hope and forgiveness and redemption. This Messiah who gave his own life to establish the kingdom of God on this earth so that we could expand it to other people. That's what he came to do. And he came to make it available to everyone. Now let me give you, because what, what is the kingdom of God? I'm going to give you my definition as best I could do it. Okay? Here it is. The kingdom of God is wherever the grace of God and the will of God and the power of God is brought to bear in this world. Anytime the grace of God breaks through in this world, the kingdom is advancing. The will of God being done, the kingdom of God is advancing. And the power of God is being unleashed. The kingdom of God is advancing to make it available to everyone by this simple act of faith. And anytime someone acknowledges their own inadequacies and failures and sin, and turns to Jesus for forgiveness and redemption, the kingdom of God advances. Anytime I surrender my control over situations and let God take control, the kingdom of God advances. And when I recognize my own weaknesses and failures and I turn to him for strength and hope, the kingdom of God advances. It's a life-changing message, and it has to be delivered with more than words. And that's why Peter wrote to the early church. He said, lives good such... It's coming. There it is. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, pagans, that's not a pejorative there. That's just simply anybody who's an unbeliever. What he's saying is... You should live such good lives among the people around you that don't believe in Jesus that even though they would accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God. They will see there's something different in you. You're not perfect by a long shot, but there's something different there. God's got to be doing something in your life. 
And you know, under the Roman persecution, there was a guy named Pliny the Younger. It's the guy the beer was named after, by the way. <laughs> For those of you who are beer fans. Um, he was a governor in what is modern-day Turkey. And he was, he was put in charge of arresting these Christians. And, and he was trying to figure out, well, what can I arrest them for? I mean, what are they doing wrong? And so he actually sent um, investigators in and infiltrated the Christian church to find out what are these people doing and, and how, why are they up against the Roman government and all these things. So he would have some reason to arrest them. And, and this is what he wrote. He wrote back to Emperor Trajan. He says, the sum and substance of their fault and error had been they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly to a hymn to Christ. <laughs> Worst thing they did is they got together and they sang. As to God, and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime. In other words, they weren't saying, okay, we're, we got a conspiracy here, we're going to, you know. He said, no, not to some crime, but to not commit fraud or theft or adultery or not falsify their trust nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. In other words, he said, I wanted to find something to arrest them for, but all I could find is that they get together on the first day of the week, they sing some songs, and they promise to be good people. <laughs> if only that's all we could be accused of. The kingdom of God advances, but not just in words. It advances through our actions. And whenever the church has remembered our mission and stayed on mission, the kingdom of God has advances. And when the church has got into trouble is when it's gotten too much power, too much influence, and too much money. And that's why Jesus said to 12 people who had no influence, no power, and no money, there's a bigger rock that we're going to build this thing on. And nothing's going to stop it. John Ortberg, most of you know, one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called Eternity is Now in Session, Advancing the Kingdom of God. This is what he writes. We are not in charge, but we are not idle. We are engaged. We become a part of God's project. Every time we bring a slice of up their life, down here, the kingdom of God breaks into this messed up kingdoms of this world. Every time you're in conflict with someone, when you want to hurt them and gossip about them, avoid them, but instead you go to them, seek reconciliation and forgiveness... The kingdom is breaking into this world. Every time you have a chunk of money and you decide to give sacrificially to somebody who is hungry or homeless or poor, that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. Every time somebody who has an addiction wants to partner with God so badly that they're willing to stop hiding, acknowledge the truth, and get help from a loving community, the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. Every time a workaholic parent decides to stop idolizing their job and rearranges their life to begin to love and care for the little children entrusted to them, the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. This good news happens through Jesus. Jesus himself, through his incarnation, is literally up there coming down here. The good news is not that we're called to do these things on our own, as though we've been given a longer to-do list. The good news is that the power has become available to increasingly turn us into the kinds of people who naturally and recreationally do such things so that the kingdom of God may break into this world. So I want to leave you with three questions for you to consider this week. Put them up here on the screen. First question for you is this. Does my level of involvement in my church demonstrate love and commitment to the community? In other words, does my personal involvement, my engagement with my church demonstrate any kind of love and dedication 
to this faith community. Another question. What's one thing I can do this week to strengthen my engagement with another Christ follower? Maybe a phone call. Maybe a meeting in your backyard. Maybe a letter, but somehow engaging this week with another Christ follower because we're living stones being built together. And then the last one, are my words, my actions, and my life making God's kingdom more or less accessible and inviting to those around me? Questions for us to think about. Take them home with you. Think about them this week. But think about them now as we stand together in this reflection on where we're building our life as we sing it.